You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It's the Star Wars Creature Cantina that you put together. Action figures each sold separately. You can make them move on revolving discs with the action lever. You can even make them fall. Got you, Hammerhead. Got him. I told you not to follow me, Guido. You owe us money, Han Solo. You're not going to collect this time. Wow, what a weird place. Kenner's new Star Wars Creature Cantina. Action figures sold separately. Hi everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Trance. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are delving into a combination of toy review, if you will, and psychology. Now you're probably wondering what the hell do those two things, you know, have in common? How could those be connected? Well, this specifically has to do with a recent Kenner Star Wars playset that I got, which is the Creature Cantina. And how it's very important to me, you know, very significant to me, having acquired this particular piece, and how it relates to the psychology, believe it or not, there is a method to the madness, the psychology of collecting. Whether you're collecting toys or whatever you happen to be into, odds are you might fall under certain camps or certain rules of how you collect. Well, this is what we're going to talk about today. So let's get started. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Okay, as you guys know, I've been slowly, very slowly, putting together my collection back. Uh, not only with action figures, but with playsets or ships, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And along the way, I have been also been picking up new items that I never had before, that I never bothered collecting originally, or they were too expensive, or I couldn't find them, or I just wasn't that interested at the time. The thing to keep in mind is that when I was young, when I first got hit with the Star Wars bug... I wasn't really a collector. I don't know if back then people would consider themselves collectors. In my particular case, I was just a kid who loved the toys. I was just a consumer. <laughs> your typical targeted, 
you know, market targeted individual whose life had changed, you know, once they saw this movie and then were presented with an optional other thing having to do with the movie. And that is merchandise, which was something that was not that you know, widespread when it came to a, a movie around that time, especially, you know, sci-fi movie kind of thing. We all know how that came about and what a surprise it was and how and what a rush people had to go to to get some product out there and all that sort of thing. However, not till much, much later, I would consider myself a collector. Well, what I want to talk about today is one specific piece that I acquired very recently, and that is the Kenner Creature Cantina. The Star Wars Cantina, most likely. Now, this isn't the first one uh, that was available because, uh, from what I understand, I've never seen. You know, again, this was a little bit before my time. I've never had a chance to see them, but there was a most Eisley, I guess, or a Cantina Adventure set, which was more of a cardboard-based thing that was sold. What's important about these earlier ones, these kind of rush jobs that they did, was that it, this one actually came with a blue snaggletooth, which is a very, you know, rare item in the world of Star Wars. And again, the snaggletooth, as you guys remember, was in, uh, uh, I believe, a Sears exclusive. Uh, no, what I'm talking about is the, the the later one. I think it might have came out in '79. You know, once once the product line was already cooking, you know, you already had your first twelve, and now you had your second wave which included a lot of the cantina creatures not all of them but some of the cantina creatures well this is the the product that was put out at that time now the thing to keep in mind is as usual you know you have to put yourself back in that time in the terms of the limitations the creativity the 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 technical uh, limitations if you will of of what could be put together now, this particular set, you could also find pictures on the internet of the prototype uh, that was made for it, which looked a little different. If you look at some of the pictures of the prototype that Kenner came up with before the final product, you're going to see uh, pictures of, of something that looks pretty similar. You have a bar at, at, the, you know, at the left side, if you're looking at it straight on. You have a series of steps, very low-level steps, all along the bar area. And then you have an entrance located at the rear right. That's the prototype. By the time you get, you know, to the final product, they rearrange some items. The bar is still kind of on the left side, uh, but the entrance now is located on the left side, off to the off to the side, kind of a little slightly out of the way, with a series of steps leading into that entrance area. The entrance originally didn't have. I believe if I'm looking at the picture right, a door mechanism, the final product did come with a door mechanism. The large series of steps that the prototype had were replaced for, let's say, for example, half a floor, half of, half of a leveled floor, and then a corner front right area with a series of smaller steps. Reason being is that they reserved that, that right far corner where the entrance was supposed to be according to the prototype uh, so that they could then build the little nook where Han and uh, Greedo are uh, talking and Han shoots Greedo you know that that little nook area that made it into the final product the backdrop 
uh, also looks a little different than the original. Again, this is it's prototype. Prototype, you know, they, they don't go that crazy. But, th- you know, the, the final product one does have that nook area. Now, it's hard to say whether or not the original prototype already had designed all these little levers that this one comes with. And by that, what I mean is the final product, not only do you have the, the bar and then the little table on the side, but there's actually two areas where you can stand your figure on top of a little circle disc, and that is attached to a lever. And as you move the lever, the figure moves in the same manner as the lever moves, but it also generates a little extended under the floor lever that creates a little um, like a little slit where a little piece of plastic can either pop up or down. So if you place a figure on top of it and then you move the lever, it's as if you're knocking that figure down, creating the effect of somebody, let's say, being uh, hit by a blaster or, or like Obi-Wan, you know, brandishing his lightsaber and taking down Walrus Man. You know, that kind of a thing. So there are two sections in this uh, final product where you could do that. One being the bar and one being the nook for Han and Greedo. There's another area where you have some sort of mechanical interactivity, and that is on the doors, the front doors, you know, off to the side. If you step on a button, the doors will swing open, you know, kind of creating that feel. Uh, Now, I don't remember exactly in the movie how the doors open or if they even show them opening. I don't remember exactly. I don't know if they slow, if they open side to side, up and down. I honestly don't remember. But here, it's more of a, a saloon bar kind of door where they kind of overlap in like kind of like teeth in the middle. Now, the particular piece that I was able to purchase, again, this was an eBay purchase, didn't come with the doors. So I am technically still looking for those doors. But what was important was that it had the door frame and the backdrop. I seen a lot of eBay postings where all they're offering you is the the shell, the plastic shell. And people are paying $25, $30, just for a plastic shell, which, I, you know, if I'm going to pay that kind of money, I want to be able to get as many of the extra pieces as possible. Now, when you first purchased this from scratch back in 79, uh, you had to put it all together. All those discs where people could stand, you know, the, granted, the, the base has many other areas where there are little pegs where you can put the figure to stand on the pegs, you know, solid standing on the pegs. Um, but for those kind of motiony kind of areas and some other, I would say, slightly random areas, there's also certain of those discs, but they really don't serve a purpose in terms of movement uh, because they have no other levers. But there are plenty of areas where you can stand your figures. When you first bought this from scratch, you had to attach all of those extra pieces, which it's a little confusing, a little mysterious as to why they would have extra sections with discs where there would be no attachments for those discs. It's a little weird, but anyway, uh, also the stickers, you know, the top of the bar and the top of the drink table, if you will, you have to attach those stickers. The backdrop, you would kind of fold and attach to the back. The door jam, obviously door frame you would you would attach that to and then with a series of rubber bands you would rig up the doors so that they attach in a certain way in order to be able to be triggered by that button Uh, and i remember you know kind of hooking that um, rubber band used to be a little bit of a pain in the butt 
I'm going to assume nowadays most of those original rubber bands are probably all dried out and broken, so I'll be surprised if anybody still has original rubber bands. So this is the type of thing where you would have to then at a certain point replace the rubber band you know, with a modern rubber band. No big deal. That's been done a million times. The only other two stickers I think it comes with are some like wall panel controls, and that's the two that you attach to your door frame. You know, it looks like there's controls in there, and you could say maybe that's one of those droid detection devices. You could say that, I guess. That's, that's fine. One little interesting tidbit about this that I, you know, when I was reassembling this when I first got it a couple weeks ago, and I'm trying to figure out, oh, the, the, the backdrop has a section all the way on the left where it overlaps with the door frame. So it kind of looks as if the door frame has an extra lip to it that meets the backdrop. And by first looking at it, I would say, well, if I attach it the way that the picture of the toy displayed it, then I would actually be covering one of those creatures that is drawn in the back. So I'm going to display this in reverse. In other words, the, the backdrop is going to overlap the door frame instead of the door frame overlapping the backdrop, which again, you know, I, I was like looking through all these pictures of how people display them and there are people to display them either way. If you want to be true to the packaging, you are going to actually be covering up some art. Uh, but I have a feeling that was a mistake. I think that was an error because there's really no reason why the, the door frame would have an extra lip, if you will, of plastic. Unless the purpose of that lip is to keep the cardboard from, I guess, collapsing inwardly. Even though it's, you know, the, car the cardboard does tuck all along the edge of the floor. Plus it creates another section that is really not matching the front, you know, the, the other side of that door frame. So when you guys, if you have this, or if you go looking online for pictures, take a look at that. It's an interesting little, little tidbit that you would, like I said, if you do display the way it's supposed to be displayed, if you go by the rules of the packaging, uh, you are going to be covering up some art. Now, one more little bit of trivia, if you will, associated with this particular item is that historically, Kenner has reused many or a significant amount of Star Wars toys to be able to manufacture other toy lines. The most known one, the most famous one, if you will, is probably the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves line the, the, from that Kevin Cosner movie. Well, if you guys remember, or if you guys want to look it up on the internet, the Ewok playset, the tree houses, all of that Ewok playset that they made for Return of the Jedi by Kenner, they recycled it, repainted it a little bit and reconfigured it and sold it off as one of these Robin Hood playsets, which is uh, really, really interesting how they, you know, <laughs> they were able to re recycle this. And this happens a lot of times with, especially in the past with a lot of different companies, they would repackage, relabel and recolor certain items and sold as something else. Also part of that line, that Robin Hood line, we also have the, uh, the Friar Tuck, I think it's the Friar Tuck figure, which is based off the Gamorrean guard figure. And that's another one that I, you know, I, I, I bought that Friar Tuck figure just because of that. The fact that you can hold these side by side and look at them. And it's just incredible how they just repainted certain things and they just remolded the head, for example. It was that easy for them to do it. In this particular example now, we have something very similar that happened. But instead of Robin Hood, this time around the movie was 
I think it was The Lone Ranger, The Legend of the Lone Ranger. I think it was like a 1980 or 81 film. I forget exactly. But anyway, uh, that film had a, you know, its own toy line, you know, Lone Ranger, Tonto, you know, some cowboys, whatever. And one of the play sets that was available was a like a saloon. It was the, the, the Real West Western Cafe playset. So it's a cafe. It's a saloon. It's a bar. Got it. Get it. But guess what? It is basically the cantina. So what they did is they took pretty much the final design of the cantina. The mold is exactly the same for the whole floor and tables. You have the bar, the little single table on on the far right, the door on the left, the steps in the front, except it's all molded brown to look like wood, I guess. And they place a big sticker, you know, near the steps to the right to simulate, I guess, wood planks. Then you have the door, again, the door frame, again, molded brown, and the doors are typical Western cowboy uh, saloon-looking doors, you know, the flippy-flap, back-and-forth short doors. I'm sure there's a formal name for them. So that is completely original, the shape of the doors. The background is just like the cantina in terms of it being a cardboard layout that tucks into the back and rolls around the side, obviously with, with... western looking drawings in the back like again like an old-timey saloon now what's funny is that it comes with a cardboard cutout of a bartender so that is really interesting because i guess the line itself wasn't ready to come up with a character i guess i mean obviously the line was very short and it, it failed probably just like the movie pretty much failed but it did come with a cardboard bartender that you could add to the uh to the set now the only other additional what looks like to be i think cardboard piece is a piece that has the art of like a chandelier and it attaches to the top of the background piece. So it makes the background piece just a little bit higher by attaching this piece in the back, giving it a, a higher ceiling, if you will, by by them putting the chandelier art. Again, I, I've never seen this in person. I, I'm pretty sure it's a very rare, hard-to-find piece. It might even be harder to find. I'm sure it's harder to find <laughs> the, the cantina piece. Now, the, the, the other thing that I've seen, because you know, you guys, I'm into customizing, and I've seen a number of people take these play sets, these shells, especially the cantina ones, because sometimes you can find a lot of them not very expensive because of the fact that all that's left is the shell, not the background, not the doors, none of that, you know, additional materials, but just the shell. And some people paint it a different color. And, uh, like, for example, I've seen somebody paint it black and turn it into, like, a Star Destroyer environment or a Death Star environment. And then they'll just put whatever background they manufacture themselves to make it look like that. And that's a great idea. And that is exactly, exactly the type of thing Kenner would have done if they would have thought of at the time. Because if you guys remember the droid playset that came out for Star Wars, that place it was released two more times to go along with Empire and Return of the Jedi. They just remolded it in a different color. Yes, some areas look a little different, but it's almost exactly the same kind of layout. It's this big, you know, platform with a big crane in the middle, and it's just repaint and resell, repaint and resell. They kind of caught on to that after a while. I think the Jawa playset maybe uh, is very similar to a Hoth playset that they did. Again, remold, rem- you know, remold, recolor, different backgrounds, sell it. 
granted, that's not where their bread and butter is. Most of the stuff that they did sell successfully is the original stuff because that's what kids want. And these are kind of cheapy in terms of whenever you add cardboard as part of the design, it kind of takes away a little bit from it. That's why, for example, the Dagobah play set is much more, in my opinion, popular and successful is because they didn't just put a cardboard background to look like Yoda's house. They actually built Yoda's house. So I think they, they kind of understood that. And after a while, you can't really get too cheap on these things. You have to actually manufacture something the kids can actually hold and won't fall apart in their hands, you know, like cardboard. But... Yeah, the, the idea of recycling, <laughs> of recycling these pieces is nothing new. And not only do they recycle within the toy line, they recycle out of the toy line. But anyway, the reason why this is an important piece, for me at least, not only is it possibly, if I think hard enough, the first piece that I've ever gotten in terms of playsets. I might have even gotten this before I got any ships pretty sure. So this is one of the original pieces, but I haven't been going completely crazy looking for this piece. Granted, you know, what I had been doing, and ironically enough, for the last 10 years, is trying to reconstitute my childhood toy collection. And I use the word collection loosely because again, I wasn't a collector back then. I was just a kid who played with toys, who liked toys and who more or less was able to hang on to a lot of them, but I did lose. Again, this story, you could hit the button and I'll, and you can hear it a million times. I had quite a number of toys, not all of them. I didn't have all of them. I didn't have all the Star Wars toys, but because I had other, other toys, you know, I had other types of uh, collections. But when it was all said and done, after we moved from one location to another location, I lost all of my play sets and ships. The only thing that I was able to keep that I did not lose is a plastic bag with Kenner action figures. And those Kenner action figures stayed in that plastic bag for many, many, many years, never touching them. At one point, when my son was born, this is like around uh, 1998, which was also a little later, obviously, well, not exactly when he was born, but after my son was born. And unavoidably, you know, he started to take an interest in Star Wars. Granted, you know, I, I will admit I am not only myself and my wife, we're both very guilty of uh, <laughs> leading him in that direction and him getting his own action figures. I remember by the time uh, that he's playing with action figures, let's say he's maybe three, four years old, five years old, something like that. He is already, as far as collecting goes or the market goes, we're now on that second wave of the, the resurgence of Star Wars figures. You know, the mid-90s brought back Kenner, which then turned into Hasbro. So he's dealing with a brand new line of toys that are being advertised and you see in the stores. And, you know, in, in my idea was rather than start from scratch, you know, one at a time, hey, I still have this bag full of figures they're not probably as cool looking as the ones that you're getting in the store. They're not as articulated as those. They're not as shiny, fresh. Accessories are not as good, you know. But volume, I have practically all of them back then. And except for the majority of the last 17, I had them all. So I remember I did give my son at one point 
the bag. And I think I put I put them all in a jar, in a plastic jar or something. And he played with them. And he got hooked on Star Wars, you know, television and the movies and the videotapes. I, I remember I, um, I even took some of the movies... I even edited them down a little bit, like the the more violent scenes of, especially like Revenge of the Sith and stuff like that, which we was too young to go see in the theater. You know, I kind of edited them down a little bit so he could watch them and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, he had a a nice long run of of learning about Star Wars, if you will, you know, while playing with my old toys, with my old Kenner action figures, and. Eventually, it came a time, as it usually comes with most kids, where they're done with this and they're ready to move on to something else. So when Kyle was done with those small figures, and he moved on to whatever else he moved on to, I was like, you know what, Kyle, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these back. You know, I'm going to take them back. Because around that time, I think, I started to kind of get nostalgic, I guess, about my old collection and... You know, that the, the fact that I lost so many toys during that move, it was something that always bothered me, I would say almost to this day. If you guys have been listening to my show for all these years, you, you probably have heard me bitch and moan about that for a long time. It's a, it's a, it's a scar in my psyche that, that stayed there, uh, that, that has remained there for a very, very long time. I mean, wow, that was like 1989, maybe? 1989? Since 1989? Oh my god, that's like almost a little over 30 years. It's like a traumatic event in my life. <laughs> but anyway, so he was done, you know, playing with these toys, and I, I got them back, and that's when I started saying to myself, you know what, I want to I display these, and it's like, okay, and then I kind of realized, well, you know, along the way, you know, he was playing with them, he, he beat them up, you know, I already beat them up, I beat up these figures... Not too much, but quite a bit. And then he beat them up some more. And around 2010, I believe it was, when I was like thinking to myself, you know what, it'd be nice to, you know, I go to these conventions and they do have some of these older toys, but I've never really bothered with them too much because you know, it's like, yeah, I used to own some of these. That's nice. Whatever. Next. You know, all through the 80s, I, I, I went through conventions, but I never really bothered much with Star Wars. First of all, new Star Wars didn't exist. You know, everything died around 85, but easily by 84 or late 83, it was dwindling to nothing. And that's one of the main reasons why I was never able to collect or buy those last 17 was because the normal places where I was able to get things just did not have them. You would have to go. I remember only once I was in Manhattan. I think it might have been at Forbidden Planet. And not even the big Forbidden Planet, the little one. They used to have a second little one somewhere uptown. I forget where. And they did have some of those last 17. And I remember seeing them up there. And the price was already a little more than normal. Now, granted, not, not anywhere as insane as, you know, mint in card last 17 figures today. But for my you know, state back then, financial state back then. It was still like, and I remember I was like, you know what, I already kind of put these things away. Why would I buy brand new figures just to open them and just throw them in a bag again? You know, it didn't make sense back then. Once the well dried up of merchandise, I gave up. I was like, I'm done. I, I can't, I, there's no other places to go. Remember, this was pre-eBay, pre-internet. And for me, it was even pre-Toys R Us. I grew up, in the States, 
you know, from 79 to late 80s, early 90s without stepping into a Toys R Us because what are, what I had back then were local toy stores, mom and pop places. Only when I went into Manhattan was I able to go into a little more, if you can consider, upscale pla- you know, place like Forbidden Planet where there was like, wait a minute, these people are like top not and again, it's not Toys R Us, but all of a sudden you see statues, you see, you know, models, you know, RPG, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. More organized, more professional. But where I lived in, in Jackson Heights and, and, and Middle Village and Maspeth and stuff like that, no, that, that didn't, um, you know, that kind of stuff wasn't there. So anyway, I get all these figures back and I start figuring out what I'm missing because yes, along the way, even with Kyle, you know, some went missing. Some got beat up so bad that I need to replenish, the re, I needed to rebuy new ones. So my plan at the time and remain to this point is, you know, I'll go to conventions if I see some box of beaters, you know, beaters, the, 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 the ones that are beat up, if I can find something in good shape, I'll start. So little by little, I made a list of, of how many figures I needed to replace. And little by little, as I started going to these conventions, whether it's Celebration or New York Comic Con, because remember, around the time we went to Celebration, I think it was Celebration 5, actually here in, in Orlando, actually, uh, back then, uh, I think, is also when I kind of started getting back into conventions again. I started doing conventions, and, and, and in New York, obviously New York Comic Con at the time was the big one. So little by little, by attending these different shows and conventions, I started to reconstitute the collection. Uh, and not only getting replacements for my older ones that I had missed, but uh, the the last 17, you know, starting to, little by little, starting to get those last 17. And as you guys know, I'm done with that. I, I've, I've completed that collection as far as I want to take it. Now, granted, some of them are not originals. Some of them are reproductions and stuff like that, because the, the, the real ones are way too expensive and, and that sort of thing. But for the type of collector that I am today, I'm happy with that. Coincidentally, when I started doing this was also around the time where we started the show, Reek Fest Rants. Uh, it was all around 2010. I remember we went to, I think, again, it was Celebration 5, and I had already been listening to podcasts, uh, Star Wars podcasts, comedy podcasts, all kinds of podcasts, and uh, my idea came of, hey, if these guys can do it, I might be able to do it. Fast forward 10 years later, and we're here 400 plus episodes later. But as that developed, so did my Star Wars collection. And little by little, you know, like I said, the, the figures were complete. Every now and then I would dip into a creature. Oh, there's a Rancor. It's only 10 bucks. Hey, well, let's get it. Why not? It's really, you know, you kind of, you know, whatever rules you have in your head, you start to kind of bend those rules a little bit. And Well, the Rancor, he is a creature, so he is a character. And it's like, well, where do you draw the line between creatures and, and, and characters and droids and, you know, action figures are these little tiny things, but the Rancor is kind of big. So, yeah, so I would then say, all right, well, not only do I need the action figures, but I should also get all the creatures because the creatures are really an extension of the characters, if you will. You know, the Tauntaun is is a creature. You know, it's a vehicle because they ride it, but it's really a creature. So creatures should be included. So I got a Rancor. Oh, well, oh, I lost my Jabba. Well, let's let's get Jabba because Jabba, Jabba is definitely a creature and it's a character. And Salacious Crump comes with Jabba. So, and then, uh, for example, the Dubak. Okay, we get the Dubak. The Dubak is kind of like another one of these ride-along creatures. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, the Dianoga. Oh, crap. Well, the Dianoga is part of the playset. And I, there's no way I'm going to ever afford the playset, you know, the Death Star playset. So 
at the time, I actually bought from Mexico a Dianoga, which I think cost me at the time like 20 or $30, which it was probably the most I ever spend on an action figure back then. But you know what? It's worth it because it's now, you know, you're now completing that collection that includes the creatures too. And uh, at the same time, I was I remember the probot. It's like the probot, but wait a minute, the probot. This is something I always had a problem with because I always had this issue of how big is the probot? Is the probot like a large ship, or is it really a small thing? Because the toy was kind of small. Well, the toy, believe it or not, is actually more or less in proportion to it. So I had to get a probot. You know, at the time I didn't get the entire playset. I think I just got just the probot. <laughs> so. I'm like, okay, I got all the characters, all the droids, all the creatures, all the humans, if you will. And I got all the creatures. I think I got all the creatures. I think I'm pretty good with the creatures now. And it's funny because even up to like uh, two, three days ago, <laughs> I got another Tauntaun. I had a Tauntaun, but then I got the open belly Tauntaun. Because like, well, you know what? Technically, they look exactly the same. But one is the open belly Tauntaun. And I really want to put a Luke inside the belly of a Tauntaun. So, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm completely done, you know, with this collection. But again, along the way in these last 10 years, whenever I would see a vehicle or a playset cheap, you know, that people were just trying to get rid of, I would pick it up. And like little by little, I couldn't give you an exact number, but I might be about maybe 75% there in terms of how many vehicles and playsets I have now that I never had before or I had before. So my collection keeps growing. And every now and then when I see something that I never had before, that's cheap because again, I don't pay top price for anything. I look for the bargains like crazy and it takes time. It's a, it's a nice steady thing that takes years. I mean, again, keep it, like I said, I, I, this particular wave of collecting has now been going on for 10 years. And one of the things I've been picking up lately is the diecast ships. You know, I now have three diecast ships. I used to have, I used to actually own three, I think. I used to own the Vader's TIE Fighter, Millennium Falcon, and the Star Destroyer. I was able now to get, little by little, over the last couple of years, Vader's TIE Fighter, Millennium Falcon, and an X-Wing. So I'm also, little by little, getting those. If I see an unusual item, the vans, the, those ripcord vans, Star Wars vans, the original ones... I got a pair of those. They're not in excellent shape, but hey, it's it's an unusual little item. I've gotten eight tracks of Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back soundtracks. Uh, I've gotten, and some of these I already owned, uh, Atari games for Star Wars and Empire. Uh, you know, unusual items like that. You know, weird little things that, you know, you kind of completely forget about until you actually see them. You're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, things like that. But anyway, with uh, vehicles and playsets. What's really, really important about this Cantina playset that I've been telling you about, that I haven't particularly been going crazy until very recently looking for it, is that this is actually the last playset that I've gotten that I had completely missed when I lost all those toys in the move. So in other words, as of now, if you don't count some of the, like this other diecast that I'm looking for now, the major items from that move that I was never able to reconstitute has been done. And it's a, a real, believe it or not, it's a real kind of weight off my shoulders. The psychology, if you will, and this is something we, we talked about in the past of, of doing a show about it, but 
again, I don't have a degree in it, but I can tell you from my own personal experience. There are different types of collectors out there. And each type of collector could probably write their own book about what motivates them. You have people that buy things just to resell things. So they're not really collectors, they're investors. They're they're turning it around, they're, they're flipping. It's like a guy that flips houses. Well, this could be a, a person that just flips toys. And they're always on the lookout. You know, uh, as a good business person, if you will, they're on the lookout to be able to flip a toy. Buy it low, sell high. Okay, that's one kind of collector. I get that. The other collector is the collector that likes to uh, buy these things and really is very interested in its worth, in its value. They're not so much interested in displaying or showing or even playing with them, let's say. I mean, granted, I'm not even in the age of playing with them anymore, but it's more about letting people know how much it's worth. So this is a completely different kind of person. It's more about them telling you that they own this thing and how much it's worth and how much they could do with that money if they wanted to do something with that money. So they'll tell you that... Well, you know, this uh, Death Star I got over here, place set is uh, in mint condition, and I mean, I could get easily five, six hundred dollars for it. But do they ever do that? No. So that's a different kind of collector. They're not flipping stuff, you know, fast. They're just sort of collecting for one day, theoretically, in their mind that they are going to sell it. And some of these happen, and some of these don't. You know, you could know a person for 30, 40 years. And all they talk about is how much their collection is worth and how much they could do with that money and how many things they could accomplish, but they never do it for whatever reason. So that's a different kind of collector. Then you have collectors that are interested in collecting things because they want to keep them. They're not interested in the selling aspect that much. They're not, they don't necessarily brag about it that much either. They're not that concerned about how much it's worth. But you have collectors who collect and kind of Put away. Now, granted, the, the put away aspect depends on many things. A lot of people put the stuff away because they can't, they don't have room. But there is a specific strand of collector that puts away because they're afraid that they're going to be robbed. Or it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of like a private collection thing where you buy things, but it's kept quiet in a room or in a closet and almost nobody sees it maybe hopefully at least by that collector only so it's kind of like a hidden collector if you will a person that collects things but does not talk about them show them to anybody very very closed off from from the collecting society or from or even from other people you know this also kind of goes into possibly the collector that's embarrassed of his collection now keep in mind all these different collectors that I'm telling you about they could all overlap. You could have a little bit of this and a little tiny bit of this. You could have the, uh, you can have the hoarder, the person that buys, you know, a thousand Chewbacca's and doesn't talk about it, <laughs> because that person might think he has a little problem with a thousand Chewbacca's. Who could also be the type of person that doesn't show it to anybody because they're embarrassed of what it is. The embarrassment factor goes in many different directions. Whether you collect a little or a ridiculous amount or a focus collector who goes crazy on one character you know the embarrassment factor could hit 
any of these type of collectors really, really hard. So, you know, it's it's kind of like overlaps of these little, imagine these circles that kind of overlap into each other. And, and then you see, you know, where are you, where are you at on these different kind of circles? So again, you do have these kind of hoarder collectors, the, the ones that buy a lot and hide it. Uh, and then you have uh, collectors that, that, you know, they, they, they collect and they display and it's out there and it's public. Let's put it that way, public. I think that's kind of where I fall. I fall under the, I, I get the stuff, I display it, it's out there. It could be touched, it could be picked up, it could be looked at. Granted, even within my type of collecting world, you do have these other overlaps where you do have people that are kind of like myself, but the collection goes everywhere into your house where your entire house is basically a museum. Now, I have made up my own standards, my own rules, and granted, because I do not live alone, because I am married and have children, <laughs> you know, I'm not the only one making up these rules. You know, my, my, my spouse obviously makes up a lot of these rules too. And the, the way that I deal with this is that I have a room, which is kind of like my office, where this is where I try to keep 99% of everything I own in this office. I try not to put things away in the closet. I try to figure out ways of displaying things as much as possible because I do not like, personally, I do not like the, the model or the type of collector that has to hide everything, whether it's because they're embarrassed or because there's no room. I mean, I would hate to have no room because being able to be surrounded by this in a creative environment, especially when I'm doing a podcast or just about anything in this room, if I'm working on my desk, if I'm working on a project, if I'm working on a model, if I'm working on a customizing, it, it's good to be surrounded by. I, you know, it, it feeds me. It feeds my, my creativity, my sanity to be surrounded by all this. But yeah, you, you, if you don't have the restraints of having to share your living spaces with someone else, it is very tempting to basically turn every room into Star Wars. It, it could, I could easily see that happening, very easily see that happening. The more, or better yet, the less social you are, the more probably that would happen. Because if you're not a very social person, then who cares what the rooms look like because you're not really showing them off to anybody. If you are a more social person, you are concerned about, let's say, for example, bringing people over to your house, whether it's family or friends, or let's say a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you know, and then all of a sudden your girlfriend or your boyfriend walks into the house and goes, oh, shit. <laughs> when, when they see your collection, you know, that could be a deal breaker. And I'm sure it's been, I mean, I've heard, you hear stories. Sometimes it's a deal breaker when you, when the person walks into your house or they walk into the house of whoever it is that they're finally getting to see their house and they see something that really kind of turns them off. So yeah, I, I understand that. And I understand the, 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 the personality types and, and the situations where you try to kind of, you know, tone it down, you know, whatever freaky thing you're into, <laughs> 
whatever little freaky thing you're into, you don't really want to bring it out on the first date. <laughs> and and believe it or not, something like this, a collect if you're whatever you happen to be into, and you know, obviously, you know, there there are much worse things to be into and more scary things to be into, but yeah, if you, I could imagine if if you're thinking you're dealing with your average person and then you walk into their house and their house looks like my office, you might have to kind of reconsider things. <laughs> but luckily, or hopefully, depending on how much you want to show your collection, whether you go full hog the whole house or maybe just one room, you know, whichever way, you, you know, you decide to go. It's hopefully the type of thing that when you do bring people over, you know, these are people that you know and people that you've hopefully might have already had conversations about your interests. I'm into sports. I'm into fishing. I'm into stamp collecting, whatever. And they'll kind of understand that at a certain point when they come to their house, oh, and I'll show you I have, you know, all my all my collectible blah, 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 whatever. So that... You know, they, they don't just like run out of your house screaming that <laughs> you're insane. So yeah, you know, you have that that thing where this could get out of control. And and yes, you know, just like anything else, think about anything. There is a tipping point, you know, to everything, to collecting, to whatever. Collecting could become an addiction. It could become like alcoholism, you know, or gambling. You know, it could turn into something that consumes you. So just like anything else, you have to do it under certain control. Now, within all these different types of collecting worlds that I just talked to you about, you know, where do you fall on these kind of collecting things? Well, the, 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 those are more like the psychology, uh, I guess, of the collectors. How do they display? How do they talk about? How do they project? How do they interact with other people regarding their collection? What is their strategy? Some people really don't care. I mean, the problem with 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 the the the, the person that is just there to flip toys is that I I could never do that. First of all, I'm not a salesman, and second of all, I fall in love with the toy. I would never let go of that toy. And that's why it is something that has kind of haunted me all of this time that I had all these and I let them go. And I granted, I keep saying to myself, but guess what? You got them all back. As of now, you technically kind of got them all back. So that is, like I mentioned before, a huge weight off of my back now that it's like, wow, I'm, I'm actually in a good place. I don't have this regret. It's not like a, you know, like a bucket list, you know, this item on my bucket list, like my one of my biggest regrets of my life. No, that, that's gone. I've been able to repair that huge, huge regret. It happened kind of suddenly and unexpectedly, but the best part about it is that in the process of repairing this, this scar, <laughs> this psychological scar, if you will, is that I've been able to get all these other pieces that I never thought I was going to ever in my entire life get. And these are pieces that I appreciate now more, a million times more than I did back then. Back then, you know, I knew there was a Death Star playset, but it kind of came a little after I kind of got there. So I wasn't really that up into it. And all this time, I used to remember thinking it was kind of cheesy and very simple and not very sturdy. And, and it's not. It, it is simple. It is not very sturdy. 
you know, it is not as good as an X-Wing. You know, it is not as good, you know, as a Y-Wing. You know, the things that I had before as an AT-AT. See, to me, the AT-AT was the epitome of, oh my God, things just do not get any better than the Kenner AT-AT. At that time, as a, as a, as a toy player, not a toy collector, I was like, that's it. This is it. They've they've reached its its peak of perfection. The Adat is just an amazing toy. But now, that's what's interesting. Uh, and again, I'm older. I have a different perspective. I appreciate things differently. I learn about things differently. It's art, if you think about it. There's a certain art for everybody. And for me, it happens to be some of these toys. The simplicity... The fragility, <laughs> the fact that these things are hard to find, they're fragile, they're not very, very realistic, you know. Normally, that would be something of a turnoff when it comes to a kid, and for me. But now, it's not. Now, it's like I can appreciate just about everything of this era that they put out. Now, it is possible that this is part of the collector pitfall that collectors never finish. And I'm, I think that's a true kind of theory. A true collector will never be done. You know, in my particular case, the figures was it at the time. And then I started dipping into something else. And then that something else got fulfilled. And then I started going to some of the ships and the playsets. And then that continued, you know, and I'm still in that kind of mode. And then, you know, the die casts and every little, whatever odd little old thing that I could find along the way, vintagey, original from its time, I am still as excited about some of these things. But there is no denying that there is something very special about this cantina set. Because this cantina, you know, puts an, an end, puts the final dot at the end of that sentence of those things that got away that were bothering me for so long about not being able to get them back. Now, don't get me wrong. If magically or reasonably, I could figure out a way of being able to go back to that building, to that basement, whether it's 20, 30, 40 years later, and saying, hey, can I get in there? I wanna just check to see if that box is still there. If I could, I would, because there's something about that. And I don't know, you know, if there's much more to this than toy collecting. I'm, again, this is, it's all psychology when you really think about it. It's this nostalgia for the past. You know, when older people now, people older than myself, I'm 50 years old. So to me, older people now are the people that I work with and I work for people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, because I happen to live in an area that is heavily senior citizen, retirement communities, that sort of thing. That's the kind of business that I'm into now, professionally. So when those people talk about their youth, you know, and their way of feeling nostalgic about things. First of all, it's usually very political, which completely, completely turned me off because the politics in this area are so opposite of what I'm into, politically anyway. But a lot of times people, when they think about the, 
the nostalgia of their youth or the nostalgia of the time, it brings them back to a certain era. And again, when you think about it, that nostalgia is very manipulative. You could kind of say, you know, when I grew up, things were great. Things were much more simple. Things were much more safe. People got along better. You could leave your front door open at night. Nobody would break in. uh, Nobody would argue. And I understand people feeling that way. I just don't believe it in terms of reality is usually that nostalgic things are the good things that we remember. And we grab onto those good things. And then 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, we would like our lives to go back to those good things. But psychologically, I think we shuffle aside the bad things because nobody wants to think about those bad things. Whether it is problems with your family, problems with your neighborhood, problems with you know political issues, social issues, whatever it is, we kind of gloss over those and focus on the that red Camaro I you know I used to own when I was young, or that bicycle that I used to ride when I was young and going to baseball games with my friends and you know that kind I hear a lot of stuff like that you know but I think people you know when they're nostalgic about stuff they kind of set aside way too much of the bad stuff and focus on the good stuff in my particular case there is definitely something when I think of my childhood that these toys give me and I could say, you know, as far as my nostalgia, what makes me nostalgic and what, if anything, in me says the good old days. What are my good old days? You know, do I have good old days? Well, you know, when I think of the good old days, I think of, again, being able to buy these Star Wars toys fresh off their pegs in the store. Being able to see these movies and being blown away, completely blown away. Not just Star Wars, but the other movies. There was a lot of bad things I remember, you know, about growing up and and different places and different people and stuff like that. But again, I don't want to focus on that. I can't just blanket make a statement, you know, that things were just much better back then. No, there are things that make me nostalgic. And these are things that I have been able to bring forward in time in a way in the shape of these collections. You know, these things that I collect, like I mentioned earlier, when I am involved in things that are creative at this point in my life, and I'm not talking about work, because there's a definite line between work, things that you do to make money, to support your family, and things you do because they make you happy and they make you feel like your brain is actually expanding and exploring and and learning things. Those are two different things. And to me, being able to have all these items around me while I do this is why now, and not back then, having these things and keeping these things is very important. It's a process. And yes, the collector, I would imagine, unless you have some kind of catastrophic event, which a lot of people, including myself, has, has had you know, different times of, of, of their, our lives, all this could, could end any day. It could just disappear, go away. However, if it doesn't go away and if it doesn't disappear, I think we will always find ways of continuing it, heading into different sections, finding out a strand or a certain line of items that you never knew about or never paid attention to, but for whatever reason, 
all of a sudden you discover them and you decide, okay, this is something I want to continue with and try to complete along the way. And I think that is one of the things that is happening to me now is that as I complete these collections, as I say to myself, done with this thing, done with that thing, I am still finding odds and bits here or there of things that I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. Because keep in mind that aside from Kenner, you know, I, I, I go after a lot of different items. Luckily, or well, to my benefit, I try to focus on things that are very small in terms of how big the line is. I really don't want to go into huge lines because it's too much of a commitment. But I am really, really happy with what I have so far. And again, these pieces are, they're just incredible. They're just amazing. And I really, really appreciate the multi-generational or multi-level enjoyment that I've been able to get out of them. From a childhood perspective, my own personal perspective of what was important to me back then in getting these things and playing with these things, to at a certain point, turning whatever was left over to my son. There's a certain something there when you can, you know, I'm not building homes. I'm not, uh, you know, designing furniture or, you know, building something with my hands that I can then hand off to my children. You know, that's not me. But being able to share on a, a certain passion of mine, which is these action figures and how much joy they brought me when I was that age, and successfully doing that to the extent where he and even my daughter at a certain point, she also might have played with some of this stuff, you know, being able to spend a certain amount of time with these things that would make them happy, where then they, at a later age, then all of a sudden get interested in it again and start getting their own collections. Like my son to this day collects Star Wars and the different magazines to the six inch for the Black Series. So, you know, the, the bug has been spread. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, many, many, many years later, the whole thing coming kind of back to me from a completely different perspective. You know, I still have the initial childhood perspective of how cool they are, how playable they are. But then to be able to appreciate this from a certain brand of collecting, and again, we went over the different brands. There's a lot of them. Some of them are so different, and many of them overlap each other. And the other thing that we really didn't go into too deeply is the fact that people collect things in so many different forms. I mean, I'm an opens collector. It's the way that I can get things cheaper. I I like to touch the materials. I don't like to keep them up, you know, untouchable uh, for the most part. But for these original toys, I want to have everything open. But again, there's so many strains of collectors, open, unopened, mint in card, not mint in card, prototypes, all kinds of collections of props, originally used pieces from films, reproductions, molds, all the different steps on action figure making that goes into it, art, photographs, card backs. It's insane, you know, what you are into and then what kind of collector you are being, you know, as you follow that particular focus. Because once you have your focus, then you have to also figure out what kind of collector you are. So it's a whole other world. And what's amazing about this is that this exists probably for every single kind of collections that exist, period. 
coin collecting, stamp collecting, whatever, sports memorabilia. All of these personalities, all of these different psychological profiles, and all these specific things that you're into, it can go deep into just about everything. But once again, I am really, really glad. And and this is a, a special time. You know, this cantina basically wraps up, you know, that period, that loss that I had, you know, with all those original toys. All right, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We looked at not only toy collecting, a specific Star Wars item that I've been looking for for a while that is very special to me, but we also tried to make the connection to see how the psychology of collecting toys works for different people and how it affects me in terms of this particular piece that seems pretty insignificant probably to a lot of people, but it is a very special piece for me and specifically the last 10 years of collecting. I'm sure a lot of you might have pieces like this that you're either in the process of looking for them. You know, they're not exactly holy grails in terms of being something so unaffordable or rare that you think you might never find it, but simple that you just haven't gotten to yet. And once you reach that particular piece, you know, it signifies something very special in your strategy of collecting or your history of collecting. So thanks guys for listening and we will see you next time here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye everybody. New Star Wars The Force Awakens toys and action figures are here. Cool! Are you ready to bring the adventure of the Star Wars universe into your home? The Force is with us! And us. Yeah, us too! <laughs> New action figures and playsets for ages six and up. Way up! Battle the evil Kylo Ren. I'm gonna get you in my lightsaber. Or leave it in the box! Stormtroopers, attack! Or leave them in the box and never touch them! <laughs> All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have Rey and Finn. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Wow. <laughs> Non-stop Star Wars action, like Chewbacca with clip-on forest armor. Time to suit up. Or just look at him. Radical. Launch into hyperspace with battle action Millennium Falcon with real movie sounds. It's completely movie accurate. No, what are you doing? That's not how it lands. It goes... control the force. You control the action. They don't fight like that. Yeah, just like Doug Vader. Doug Vader? <laughs> the power's in your hands. Does your wife like toys, too? <laughs> Collect them all, and the fun never stops. Separately for children and adult collectors. Star Wars! And if you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about!
Geek Fest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2020. <laughs>